Hi, I'm Greg Schaefer, and welcome to the VCM Quick Strike for Monday, November 21st, 2022. New attacks use Windows Security Bypass Zero Day to drop malware. This coming from Bleeping Computer. I'm going to read directly from here. New phishing attacks use a Windows Zero Day vulnerability to drop the QBot malware without displaying the mark of the web security warnings. If you didn't know what mark of the web security warnings were, you're not alone. I didn't know it either, although I, I, I realized I should have. Let me just continue on here. This is why I chose this article. When files are downloaded from an untrusted remote location, such as the internet or an email attachment, Windows adds a special attribute to the file called the mark of the web, or MOTW. It's an alternate data stream that contains information about the file such as the URL security zone the file originates from, its refer, and its download URL. So if you get like the pop-up that says open file security warning, that's mark of the web. Now that's something we're all familiar with, and there's a screenshot of this in here. I just didn't know what it was called. Now this particular uh, malware, it it doesn't, it it bypasses that. So because it bypasses the MOTW security warning, Windows just go ahead and automatically open up the program to let it run. So hopefully you learned something today with that. I did as well. The article link is in the show notes. And there's more information about QBot in the article. From the conversation, Australia is considering a ban on cyber ransom payments, but it could backfire. Here's, here's another idea. This opinion piece is noting that Australia is thinking about making payments to cyber criminals, ransom payments, illegal, but says that that might make a situation worse. They do note that ransom payments sometimes work, sometimes they don't. One example is Nigeria criminalized ransom payments to kidnappers, but not paying the ransom has resulted in deaths. Surveys show that Citizens and cybersecurity experts are generally in favor of banning ransomware payments. I like that idea because if you take away the supply, you take away the demand. And that could also reduce profits racked up by the criminal gangs targeting folks in Australia and elsewhere. You could also take the burden of making a decision away from the organization targeted, according to the article, and mitigate the public's judgment on the decision. But the problem with such bans is that many ransoms are paid to unlock encrypted computers. And failing to restore that data could, in many cases, cause the business to collapse. So it's a tough business to call. If you don't make the payment, you don't have a business anymore. Now, one idea, the idea that this opinion piece is putting forth, is to ban cyber insurance reimbursements rather for ransom payments. This would reduce the overall percentage of breaches that result in a payment. This could reduce profits for criminal gangs while still allowing a company to salvage its operations under the worst case scenario. I'm not sure how that would work, but a lot of times cyber criminals will make the ransom the amount that they know the target has insurance coverage for. So stay tuned on that one. From SC Media, 44% of financial institutions say that their own IT staffs pose the biggest risk to cloud security. 
The article goes on to say that assuming that the IT team has no malicious intentions, the risk is created in two ways, misconfiguration and human error risk. Most security incidents in the cloud are one or the other. So there's a shared responsibility here. You have to make sure that the cloud resources obviously are configured, technical controls are in place, they're configured correctly. But also this calls for a maybe even tighter focus on information security awareness training. A lot of times, not just financial institutions, that training is more of a check the box thing. Got to do it once a year in order to check that box. But to quote the article here, preventing data security risks is a business imperative and shared responsibility in today's market. They also go on to say that the breaches in the financial services industry the last few years, I would extrapolate that pretty much to all industries, would be human behavior, identities and credentials, and vulnerabilities. Well, I am surprised, though, that it seems like that this is higher for financial institutions. Maybe it's because financial institutions are a higher target. Why do bank robbers rob banks? Because that's where the money is. From NBA News, Sebastian Thurn, who is a co-founder and chairman of for-profit educational organization Udacity, and former VP at Google says that the entire C-suite should be responsible for cybersecurity. He noted first that attempted cyber attacks per company rose 31% between 20 and 22, according to Accenture's latest status cybersecurity report. Also within that survey, there were 260 C-suite executives that were interviewed. 98% believe that the entire C-suite is responsible for the management of cybersecurity. So far, so good. But according to another survey conducted by Trend Micro, over 5,000 IT professionals in 26 countries, only half of those respondents said that they believe that C-suite executives fully understand cybersecurity threats and risk management. The reality that the article goes on to say is that they're not fluent or knowledgeable even of some core cybersecurity concepts like zero trust security. Now, the article goes on to say in the opinion piece here that the C-suite and senior level managers must be able to identify potential cyber threats to the organization and understand systemic risk present with its digital, within its digital ecosystem of suppliers, vendors, and customers. Now, this is pointing to what I always say is the primary duty of a CISO or a virtual CISO, and that is to provide complete, necessary and comprehensive information on the risk and threat environment so that the board of directors in the C-suite can make risk-informed decisions. So the CISO has to do that role, but the board and the C-suite need to be able to consume that. Now, Thurn talks about five items that need to occur in order for perhaps the C-suite can become more effective with regards to information security. He refers to these as core competencies that they need to adopt. The first one is developing a common language and understanding of cybersecurity risks and best practices. All of these, by the way, the CISO should be um, leading, facilitating, mentoring on. 
Second is identifying potential cyber threats and systemic risks present within their digital ecosystems. Third is evaluating how to respond to low, medium, and high-risk cyber threats. Now, this also means that they need to understand the benefits and the limitations of a qualitative risk assessment, which is essentially a graphical presentation of one or more SMEs, subject matter experts' opinions about risk. There's nothing quantitative about it. Sometimes you have a lot of math going on and that's just fake math. I've talked about that before. Number four, creating a culture of cybersecurity across the organization. This sometimes I've seen resistance to, but it's very important because, and this goes not only down to all employees, but also up through the C-suite. If you have a CIO that doesn't, or a CEO that doesn't think that they need to take the information security awareness training, well, guess what that mindset does distill down. And then finally, they have to scope cybersecurity budgets for their organizations based on a deep understanding of both risk and potential return on investment. And finally, a few starter cybersecurity certifications from Business News Daily. And these are not in any particular order, but if you're thinking about jumping into cybersecurity or you're just new in the field, you may want to look into one or more of these certifications. Microsoft Certified Security Compliance and Identity Fundamentals, ISACA Cybersecurity Fundamentals, CompTIA Security Plus, and GIAC Information Security Fundamentals, and finally, the ISC Squared System Security Certified Practitioner. So each one of these has a little bit of information on the um, those particular certifications, including some potential costs and, and, and so forth. And I would opine on those, but I don't have any of those certifications. I did teach a Network Plus class back in the day, but that was back in the day. That was probably around 2005. I do have one certification that is not listed here, and it is in the article, though, makes note of it, and that is the CISSP, or the ISC Squared Certified Information Systems Security Professional. Now, finally, they talk a little bit about advice on how to prepare for your exams, and I thought I'd give you a little bit of little bit of history and experience from when I prepared to take the CISSP exam many years ago. And I'll tell you about that in 30 seconds. I sat for the CISSP exam, I think in 2006. It was a very difficult exam. It was very difficult to prepare for. And I will say, first of all, that I was successful in my first attempt. Now, I spent a lot of time studying for it. One of the most difficult exams I've ever taken, if not the most difficult, just from the sheer volume of content, a lot of memorization, and the questions being not so basic where you can kind of infer the answer from the four that they give you. You know what I'm talking about where they give you three obvious that they can't be correct and then one that is correct and it's multiple choice so you choose that. No, this was the pick the most likely or best answer. So a lot of the times all of them could be correct in some way, shape or form. So it was a very difficult 
um, test to study for and to take, I spent a lot of time in the, um, I guess it was the yellow book, the um, official ISC squared preparation book with all the domains, you know, and I found out something interesting when I went through it. Uh, since I grew up in networking, so to speak, I thought networking was going to be my strongest domain, but actually risk management was, uh, which kind of worked out well because that's how my career has pivoted over the years. Now, I think that there are some elements that are very important to test taking. You have to know how to take a test. You have to know what it is that you're going to be getting yourself into. When I sat for the exam, this is when you had to actually go somewhere physically and they only offered it a few times a year in different places and so forth. And it was a paper and pencil type thing, not electronic. So if I remember correctly, I drove down to Huntsville from, from the Nashville area and spent the night there. And I know I, I'm pretty sure I've told this story before, but for those who haven't heard it before, the way that I prepared the night before is that I brought the book with me and I was going to do some paging through it again. So last minute cramming, if you will, but quite honestly, if you don't know it by that point in time, you're not going to know it. That's a test you cannot cram for. And so what I did is I decided I was just going to relax and just shut my brain down as best as possible. So I went and across the street from the hotel, there was a Burger King and a little mini Mart. And I got a, like a double Whopper with cheese and onion rings from Burger King and got a six pack of beer and went back, watched baseball, enjoyed, oh, well over a thousand calories, I'm sure, between that and the beer. I think I consumed just about all the beer. I know I had at least one left. Because after the test, when I finished that, I had the last beer. After about six hours of sitting, I had the last beer before I drove back up. It was a little warm, but it was okay. My point is that I'm not suggesting that you consume alcohol beforehand, but what you should do is to just extract yourself from it. Whatever you need to do to get yourself in the best mindset for taking the exam the next day. For me, it was just simply relaxing, having some casual beers and watching baseball for several hours and just getting a good night's sleep and, and, and all of that. Whatever works for you and for whatever certification, that's my advice to you. Now, as far as what certification, I don't think I'm going to step down that path on this this podcast, this episode today. And that's it for today. Coming out tomorrow, we have a great conversation with Robin Wild. She is Director of Business Solutions for Team Health. We talk about a lot of items with regards to cybersecurity, including identity management, which is a passion of hers. Another passion is also about promoting women in cyber. And I believe that she has coined the phrase privilege sprawl. You don't want to miss that if you want to know what privilege sprawl is. So tune in tomorrow and until then, stay secure.